1: Kellen, what's the longest period of time you've had to go through an electrical blackout or that your electricity was out in your home? Wow. Now that I think about it, not very
0: long at all. Maybe like 12 to 18 hours. Was that an inconvenience for you? Yeah, I guess so. I think about when the power would go out as a kid. I just loved it. Like we would get out flashlights and candles and make it kind of this fun little event, play some board games by candlelight Dad would scream at you not to open the fridge or the freezer. Right. You don't want to let any of the cold air out. Right. Anyways, there's kind of this exciting feeling when the power goes out, but that's probably because at the time you recognize it's very temporary.
1: Yeah, that's kind of my thought. As an adult, it hits different now, and I'm lucky in that I feel like the power doesn't go out as often for me as it did as a kid. I feel like it happened a lot back then. Now it's a pretty random event, maybe once every couple of years, but it certainly makes me more nervous now than it did back then.
0: Now you're the one yelling at your kids not to open the grid.
1: <laughs> That's right. And I know that a large part of my anxiety around the power going out comes from my knowledge of collapse and knowing how important the electric grid is, not just on a small scale, you know, me in my home and my family, but on a larger scale to the way our society functions as a whole.
0: And I think it's something that not only do we take for granted very often, but most people just don't understand very well. You know, in college, I worked as an electrician's apprentice for a period of time, and I learned a lot about just electrical work, you know, when it comes to wiring things up in a residential or commercial setting. And sometimes when we would go to people's homes, they needed us to do some sort of a repair or install something new. I was surprised at kind of the ignorance. You know, we'd say like, we're going to flip off this circuit breaker so that we can work on this part of the house. And they might say, oh, okay, can I still use the bathroom? Like, will the toilet still flush? Or they'd say like, oh, does that mean I shouldn't open my garage or else I'll get it shocked? Or, you know, just random questions where they didn't understand something that they use every single day in their home. I didn't blame them, right? I, I had only learned what I learned because I was in that job. But even doing electrical work for the amount of time that I did it, I was very unaware of how the power grid, the electrical grid itself worked. And so doing the research here for this episode has been really enlightening for me, and I'm excited for us to dive in.
1: Yeah, I'm probably one of those ignorant people when it comes to electrical stuff. I mean, you know, Kellen, I've had you come over and help me wire up stuff. You just helped me wire my basement Which, by the way, that one light is still wired bad. You got to come by and fix that sometime. I honestly forgot about that. (laughs) My kids can't turn on the light unless the two other lights in the main room are turned on the right way. It's this weird three-way situation. We'll get it fixed. But I do feel like, man, there is so much to that that I don't understand. And I know the average person doesn't. And we really do take it for granted. You know, I think most people, when they think about electricity and the electrical grid and and its importance, they think about the way it impacts them directly in their home. When the power goes out, they can't turn on their lights, their fridge stops working. Those are all important things. But typically when people experience power outages, it is a very localized thing specifically to their neighborhood, right? Maybe there was a lightning strike that blew a small transformer on a pole nearby, or there was a car crash that hit a pole, or a heavy snowstorm or something like that. And it takes out power for the 500 people around them or something. But when you talk about power outages on a much larger scale, which we'll get into some specific examples here soon, you realize, you start to realize that our entire system relies on a steady flow of electricity. For most homes, electricity is required to get water to that home. Pumps are required. Unless you live in a spot that has gravity-fed water systems, without electricity, you don't get water to your home. Our transportation systems are heavily reliant on electricity. There's no pumping gas if there's no electricity. There's no functioning street lights, traffic lights, you know, not just your refrigeration, but the refrigeration in the grocery stores, critical infrastructure at hospitals, and all, all these different things require electricity. And if that electricity goes down for a sustained period of time, our way of life ceases. So with all that in mind, we will dive later into some of the threats of losing the power grid. But I think it would be good first to understand what is the power grid and how does it work?
0: Yeah, let's take a few minutes to talk about that. What the grid is, what we're talking about when we even say that. It is worth noting that I think a lot of what we'll be talking about here is the power grid in the U.S., but much of it applies to the rest of the world. And obviously, like so many things that we talk about, we're not experts here. We're going to scratch the surface. But when it comes to the electrical grid or the power grid, we're talking about the whole system that takes electricity from power plants to homes and businesses. So on one hand, you've got all the parties involved. You've got the utility companies and the energy suppliers, and we'll talk a little bit about that. On the other hand, you've got the infrastructure itself. And usually when it comes to that infrastructure, it's divided into three main categories. You've got the power plants where electricity is generated, and that can be you know, fossil fuels or nuclear, renewables, whatever. And then you've got transmission. So, you know, there's transformers that transfer electrical power from one circuit to another and they either step up or step down the voltage, which allows for the electricity to be sent on these high voltage transmission lines. You know, by increasing the voltage, it means lower current, which means there's less energy that's lost to resistance
1: as the electricity travels through the conductors over those long distances. So the point of the transformers is to maximize the efficiency to lose as little energy as possible as you're sending it across these either higher or lower transmission lines.
0: Exactly. So you've got to step up the voltage while you send it over long distances And it goes from the power plants across those high voltage transmission lines until it hits these substations. And that's where you get distribution. You get these distribution lines. Again, it's stepped down to lower voltage. So it can go from the substation to houses and businesses. And you've got circuit breakers and switches and capacitors. You know, there's a lot to it. But again, it kind of comes down to those three areas of the electrical supply chain, generation, transmission, and
1: distribution. And one point I think it's really important to make is that the electricity, it flows freely on these lines, right? We don't have a way to store electricity. We don't have any sort of long-term storage capabilities. That's one of the challenges with renewables is that you have to be able to store it. So the job of the grid and of All of that infrastructure and all of the parties involved is to make sure that the supply of energy in the system is able to meet the demand in each individual place, which makes the work of those three elements that you just mentioned very complicated. This is not a simple system. From what I understand, it is highly complex with just a billion moving parts.
0: Yeah, and you're spot on there. There are some backups. There is some storage. You know, these large batteries, they can use lithium ion to store electricity. But in terms of the amount that we use on a day-to-day basis, you're right. It's not like you can just produce a huge excess of electricity and then store it and use it over the coming years. Or even months or days, right? Right. And you touched on the fact that it's a very complex system. You know, in the U.S., the U.S. power grid has been called by some the largest and most complex machine in the world. So back in 1882 in Manhattan, Edison switched on America's first power plant. And it was this amazing thing. People were in awe seeing light, right, electrical light at night. And there was quickly a push to get power plants put in a lot of the major cities throughout the U.S., Edison's system was DC or direct current, which meant it had to operate the same high voltage. And so it couldn't be sent over long distances. There would be a voltage drop over distances. There are pros and cons, but you may have heard of William Stanley working for Westinghouse. He created the transformer that would allow for alternating current systems, AC systems. Like we talked about that stepping up and stepping down of voltage And we don't need to dive into too much there. You get kind of the war between AC and DC. You get Nikola Tesla, his developments to the AC system, you know, a motor that creates two alternating currents at the same frequency. Anyways, the point is, as these developments are happening, power plants start to pop up all over the nation. And it's not necessarily done with a large scale plan in mind. Every city wants to have this advantage. And so a lot of it's being done independently. You look at where we're at today with the complex system that we have. And I want to share with you just some of the acronyms that exist. Because to me, it's kind of comical. It just highlights the complexity. So Corey, there are RTOs, or Regional Transmission Organizations, and they operate the high-voltage transmission grid and run electricity markets. You get IPPs, which are independent power producers. Usually those are for-profit companies. They own and operate power plants. You get CSPs, which are curtailment service providers. Usually they are also for-profit companies. They're involved in the demand response. And you could say that they are incentivized to reduce electricity consumption. You get electric utilities, and those exist in different forms in different places, depending on which region of the U.S. you're in. So across the U.S., we used to have these vertically integrated utilities where the utility company would be the owner of the power plant and the transmission lines and the distribution lines. And that's still the case in a lot of the southern and western U.S., But in California and Texas and most states in the northeastern U.S., in the 1990s, they did this restructuring. They call it deregulation, which is funny because it actually seems like it added a bunch of regulation. But basically, they had to break up the utilities into separate entities for each of those three areas that we talked about. So they had to have a separate entity for generation and a separate one for transmission, a separate one for distribution. And then they changed all the regulations for each of those separate areas. So one term you'll hear is balancing authorities, which if you're in an area where there's RTOs that we talked about, that's usually the RTO. But if there aren't RTOs, then it's usually the electric utility. There's the FERC, FERC, the Federal Energy Regulation Commission, which regulates RTOs and sets some prices for electric transmission, There's the NERC, the N-E-R-C, the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, and they're in charge of kind of developing standards for reliable power grids. So when you see this charted out, it is just a mess. It's a twisted mess of all these different groups and organizations and parties involved. And, you know, in my cartoon brain, when I've heard the electrical grid, I used to think of this like really clean spiderweb. And somewhere in the middle of the nation, you could just go to a big concrete building and if you pressed a big red button, it would turn off the whole thing. But when we talk about the power grid or the electric grid in the US, we're talking about three smaller regional grids. And they call those interconnections because it's really an interconnection of lots of smaller systems. So you've got the Eastern Interconnection and the Western Interconnection. And then you've got Texas. (laughs) There's always Texas. So you may have heard of ERCOT. There's another one, E-R-C-O-T. Not usually in good light, but yes, I've heard of ERCOT. Yeah. The Electric Reliability Council of Texas. And Texas basically wanted to avoid federal regulation. So they set up their own interconnection. If you take everything east of the Rocky Mountains, part of northern Texas, that's the eastern connection, and it has 36 balancing authorities. Five of those are in Canada. If you take what's west of the Rockies, you've got 37 grid
1: operators, a couple in Canada, one in Mexico, and that's the western interconnection. And then there's Quebec, right? In Canada, they're basically the Texas of Canada, and they have their own as well.
0: Anyways, as I describe the intricacies here of this system as a whole. If you're not confused, then I'm a little bit surprised because it's confusing just to explain. And if you're not bored, I'm even more surprised because
1: it is just one big boring mess. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I think I read that there was like 3,000 different utilities alone, some privately owned, some publicly owned. And the utilities are just one aspect. You know, you mentioned like 10 different acronyms and different entity types that have to do with some sort of part in the process of keeping the grid going. But I just think of 3,000 different utilities all having to sort of work together through these convoluted hierarchical structures to make everything work. And it's no wonder that the grid so often has so many problems and that people say the grid is pretty weak. I think people like to try and believe, like you said, that it's this really organized thing that was built all at the same time and it was built with the same regulations and the same standards in place. But the reality is this was back right after World War II when when things really exploded as far as these grids hooking together, right? You had all these grids that were sort of separated and then they started to interconnect. And each one with their own policies, each one with their own regulations, each one with their own standards. And now we're left with this huge concoction of grid that is at this point aging and in most cases significantly past how long it was designed for. We've done infrastructure episodes in the past about bridges and dams and, and these things that were built for to last a certain amount of years. Well, the, the grid is, is exactly that way. You know, Most of the transmission lines were built in the 50s and 60s and were designed to last 50 years or so. And in many cases, we're approaching 70 years plus
0: Yeah, in recent years, the last couple decades, we as a nation have been building so much to try to keep up with the growing population. And yet, even with all that new, the power grid's average age is 31 years. And that's a major threat. You talked about, you know, with that being an average, that means there's a lot of the existing infrastructure that is much older than that. You get metal fatigue, you get equipment deterioration, and you know, we've had all these decades putting resources towards building this complicated system that costs a lot. You know, the amount of money that is needed in order to replace all that's old. I don't have exact numbers for it, but from what I've seen it's just
1: mind boggling. Yeah, the last number that I saw, and I I can't vouch for hundred percent how accurate this was, was nearly a trillion dollars is needed in order to replace all the infrastructure to get it up to current standards. And that's just astronomical, almost a trillion dollars, imagine it. And one point in particular I think it'd be good to make here is in regards to the transformers. Kellen, you mentioned earlier substations and transformers and how they step up and step down voltages. It would be nice to believe that it was sort of a one-size-fits-all when it comes to transformers and that you could just buy a transformer on the transformer market and plug it in, but in reality... Every substation is different, especially because we're you know we're talking about how it's kind of been piecemealed together over the years. Transformers, the, the large transformers for substations have to be custom made. And it is a process that takes many months, if not years, to complete. To replace a transformer costs millions or tens of millions of dollars, and these things weigh an astronomical amount, it's a whole process to get them moved. So You know, one of the big things when we talk about, you know, we talked about EMPs one time, and the reason why, in part, that is so catastrophic is that there's just not a simple way to replace those transformers. And when we say, you know, it could take anywhere from six to 20 months, that's if everything's working as expected and properly. That's how long it would take right now to replace any given transformer. But if there ever were a time where multiple transformers needed to be replaced at once, there's no saying how long it could take. And it's worth noting here that when I'm talking about transformers, I'm not talking about the cylindrical ones that you see up on the poles, right? Those are the ones that commonly blow in a storm. Those ones are more easy to replace. I'm talking about substations. These are very large pieces of equipment. We're talking, you know, home-sized chunks of metal. And, you know, these things do blow from time to time. Superstorm Sandy, there's a video actually of a transformer blowing from miles away. And it's just this enormous flash of light. And it's just wild how how bright that is. And occasionally when something malfunctions with one or it blows because of a storm or whatever the case is, they do have to be replaced. Typically because it's so localized, they can route power around it, right? They try and be redundant so that one problem in the system isn't going to cause the whole thing to come down. Again, we'll talk about some specific examples where that hasn't been the case. But in general, the system can continue to function while they spend the 5, 6, 10, 20 months to get it replaced. But the reason I bring this up is because it's all custom and because it's such a long process and because it's so expensive, most utilities, most power companies are not keeping transformers on hand. They view it as a catastrophic waste of money to have these transformers custom made to fit. To sit in a warehouse and age without ever being used, right, there's a very small percentage or small chance that they're going to need to use them. But that does mean that the lead time remains really high, which is just worth noting is a very significant vulnerability in the electrical grid system and one that we'll touch back on again later as we discuss some of the threats to the grid. So yeah, one of the major threats when you talk about threats is what we've just briefly mentioned
0: here, which is the increasing age of the power grid's infrastructure. And we don't need to say a whole lot more about it. We've talked about that kind of thing at length when we've discussed catabolic collapse. And it's this idea that, you know, if I go to the gym a bunch and I work out and drink protein shakes and put on a whole lot of muscle and become a really big human being in order to maintain that. I have to consume a lot of calories. And if I don't, then that muscle mass will start to decline. We built extensive infrastructure and we keep building more and more. All of that is aging and will sooner or later need to be repaired and replaced. And that takes a vast amount of resources.
1: And as resources are being taken by other things, fires are being put out all over the place. You've got pandemics, you've got food supply shortages, you've got... We're running out of formula for babies. You know, all these different things that are happening distract away or don't just distract, but actually take money and resources away that could be going into upkeep on the grid. And so as it continues to age, as it's not kept to standard, the maintenance on it decreases and it becomes more and more vulnerable to some of the threats that we're about to talk about. So I think what we'll do here is we'll dive into a few different categories of threats and then we'll also expand on actual examples of those vulnerabilities in the system having been carried out in the past. So the first example that I want to talk about here is based on just complexity. This is something that is a very well-known event that happened in the U.S. and Canada, but I don't know that many people know exactly why it happened. And I think it's really fascinating to talk about what occurred. So this is the 2003 blackout. This was on August 13th, 2003. 50 million people went without power. It had a $10 billion plus economic impact, caused over 100 deaths. So this was was a big deal. And it's interesting because it all spurred from just a few seemingly small things happening at the same time that caused such a huge consequence. So here's what happened. Kellen brought up earlier multiple levels of different organizations and groups that are in charge of making the grid work. One of those is uh, reliability coordinators. So these are regional organizations that help make sure that things flow correctly. So in Ohio, this was near Cleveland, the local reliability coordinator had some issues with its contingency planning simulator. So it was this tool that runs different simulations to determine potential issues or situations on the grid, and then how to compensate or prepare to fix it. And this system is normally just consistently running and saying, okay, there's a vulnerability here. Here's how we need to reroute. Here's who we need to notify about this. And here's how we fix it. Well, again, this contingency simulator was having issues. The second thing that happened, there was high demand on electricity that day because it was a hotter day than usual. It wasn't record breaking, but it was a hot day. And so there was a lot of AC that was being used. This meant that one generator near Cleveland was pushed to the limit and it tripped off. So what that did was it meant that more power had to be pushed into Cleveland from further away. And that strains transmission lines. Typically you want to try and generate it as close to the destination as possible. So you're not pushing more and more power from further away. Next thing that happened the local utility company's alarm system malfunctioned. So it didn't warn them that the voltages were getting too high on those transmission lines. So basically, we've got a couple of computer bugs, seemingly minor, and we've got one generator that's down. So due to the heat and the increased voltage on those transmission lines, they actually sagged. So all of that heat, all of that power is actually heavier on the line. So the line started to sag down. And because of that, One of those lines sagged down into a tree limb, which caused it to trip. Now, there was some human error here as well, because customers were now calling in to the utility saying, you know, we've got low voltages, power's getting cut, what's going on? But the utility company completely disregarded it and said, we're not seeing anything on our end. And it's because their alarm systems were not working. Everything looked normal. The IT team for that utility saw that there was a problem with the alarms, but they didn't tell the operators. So they were attempting to make fixes, but they didn't tell the operators what they were seeing. Now, because that first line sagged, hit the tree, went offline, that caused even more traffic on the other lines nearby. So then those started to sag as well and also hit a tree. So you had a second pair of lines that hit a tree, tripped causing more demand on a third line which also tripped after hitting a tree and that third line was actually way over its rated capacity for voltage. It was like at 120% of what it was supposed to be at and nobody knew. It was still just completely blind. So now we've got three major lines that had sagged into trees and all the major transmission lines to Cleveland were cut. So just to mention, you've got high voltage transmission lines, and then you also have a lot of smaller transmission lines. And those smaller transmission lines can't handle all of that electricity. Like I said earlier, the power is just going to flow where it freely can, right? We don't have a way to stop it or slow it down or store it unless we just stop generating that power. And so as the larger transmission lines were cut, Power was trying to force its way through smaller lines, and one by one started tripping and cutting power off. Now, because power companies, obviously, they've created safety nets to keep their equipment safe. So if there's a large surge in power, it will automatically trip. And that's what happened here. It wasn't suddenly destroying all this equipment, but all these safeguards that were in place started tripping. And it was just a chain reaction after chain reaction that cut power to pretty much the entire northeast of the United States and some of Canada. And it's so fascinating to me because there was no one single big thing that happened. There was no huge explosion. There was no purposeful attempt to take it down. It was just a couple computer bugs, a couple tree limbs that were too close to the lines, one generator that was pushed beyond its limit. And that's all it took to cut power to 50 million people, some of them for multiple days. And you might think, okay, well, this is a really unlikely scenario for all of those little things to happen at once. But when you consider all of the variables all over the United States that could be happening at any one time and on an aging grid, it's not hard to see why those complexities can can cause this thing to happen more often. And I will say that since this event, there was a lot of investigation and reports and and looking into how can we fix this and make this not happen again, some of which was put into place. But certainly, again, because of cost, not all of it was was implemented. And so there are still plenty of vulnerabilities and weaknesses in the system.
0: You know, as we talk about the complexity of the system, I'm glad you brought up some of the fail-safes, the, uh, the safeguards that are in place. As you're listening to how i have described it, you might think like this is just one big messy system. It's all held together by duct tape and chicken wire. And it's not like there's not a lot of really smart people who are aware of the threats and the problems, a lot of regulations that have been put in place, a lot of really smart, innovative designs to the systems and the grids and, and the equipment itself. And so I think something fails when there's one problem that happens. There are plenty of contingency plans and everything is set up so that the grid can continue to operate without even a hiccup. When you get a couple of things that fail at the same time, you know, depending on what those are, you might be okay, you might not. But when multiple things all coincide, there's not really anything that can be done about that. And so I think it's a really important example that you share because, on one end, you could be really alarmist and say it's just such a fragile system that one thing goes wrong and we're all in trouble, and that's not the case. But clearly, you know, as this example illustrates, there can be converging factors that we aren't necessarily prepared for or that the system itself cannot handle.
1: I think another thing this highlights is that relatively small parts of the system can have larger cascading effects. You know, This was a, a not huge utility company. And when you think that there are 3,000 different utility companies across the US, if one of them is incompetent, and that's mixed with other converging issues at the same time, it can have much bigger effects. When you think of these individual utility companies and the regulations or standards, a lot of those are recommendations. When it comes to security and these really high standards, much of it is voluntary. And most of these small utility companies, you think of a utility company for a small town or you know a group of five to 10,000 people, they don't have the money, the millions of dollars to build these big redundancies and to put into place high security measures and all these different things. It's not in their financial interest, which can be easily argued as one reason to not have the grid be a for-profit venture. But when you have all these different utilities, and so many of them are not putting in place these high standards, redundancies, safeguards, it leaves the system vulnerable. Okay, on to the next one. Kellen, you just mentioned that for most one-off events, there are safeguards in place, we're pretty good at at creating redundancies. There are smart people in charge. When multiple things start happening, that's when you can get into some trouble. So you might think, okay, well, the chances of multiple things happening at once are low, but what if somebody wanted to purposely make multiple things happen at once, right? An actual intentional physical attack on the grid coordinated in a way that could render it useless or unfixable for a while. So in this case, we're specifically talking about maybe a terrorist attack. This could be a state-sponsored attack. It could be like an eco-terrorist thing or something like that, right? And believe it or not, there is actual examples of attempts of this sort on the grid in the past. Before I talk about the specific example, I do want to mention it's been noted that there's been over 700 physical attacks on the grid in the last decade. Obviously, these are not all like large-scale attempts, but they are physical, purposeful attacks on the grid. This one that we're going to talk about is the most famous that has happened in the U.S. This was in 2013 at the Metcalf power plant in San Jose, California. Yeah, because it was
0: just in 2013, not that long ago, I was surprised that I didn't remember hearing about it. It was probably big news at the time, but for some reason I missed it. It was a coordinated attack. You know, the first thing that was done, they had cut some fiber optic telecommunications cables, but the part of the attack that got the most attention was the fact that for roughly 20 minutes, multiple gunmen fired bullets at high voltage transformers. And they had planned this in advance. They were very accurate in their targeting. They, they targeted the cooling fans of the transformers which caused 17 of the 21 large transformers there to overheat. You know, some things were noticed on security cameras that someone heard gunshots called the police. It it resulted in more than $15 million worth of equipment damage. But in the end, it didn't have that much impact on the station's electrical power supply. And when I say that, I mean, it, it did serious damage to this station. But in terms of the impact that it had on the population, they were able to reroute power. However, if the attack would have continued, you know, the, the chairman of the Federal Energy Regulation Commission at the time said they were just minutes away from bringing down all
1: of Silicon Valley. Yeah, this story is just so wild to me. It's so mysterious. Because These guys had clearly done reconnaissance on the area before. They found little piles of rocks where their shooting positions were from. They knew to cut the communications lines. Like you said, they were hitting these very small targets with AK-47s at night from who knows how far away outside the fences of this compound, the substation. These weren't a few random drunk guys that just showed up and decided to start shooting. They knew exactly what they were doing. And who knows whether or not their actual goal was to cut power to all of Silicon Valley. One of the theories out there is that this was a test that they were essentially, you know, given their knowledge and expertise, they wanted to see how easy it was to breach a substation to test this plan, to see if it would actually shut it down. The cooling racks that they shot were filled with oil. That oil circulates through it and cools it down. They hit it 90 times and basically drained all of that oil out The first, you know, the responding units, the police officers that arrived on scene had no idea that oil was currently draining from it. It wasn't until an engineer showed up and actually saw what was happening. And they never found out who these guys were. To this day, they don't know if they were state actors and they don't still know what their primary objective was. But it makes sense to me that they could have been doing a practice run saying, look, If we wanted to take out a bunch of these substations, if we had 20 guys instead of four, what kind of damage could we do and how quickly could we do it in? And this is where things get kind of crazy because it goes back to what I had said earlier about how hard it is to replace these transformers. It's sort of well-known knowledge. There were reports that came out about this that it would take only nine critical substations being destroyed in the entire U.S. to potentially bring all power down to the entire country for months. Yeah, my understanding is that this
0: attack caused them to look into it and they ran some reports, you know, and we've kind of alluded to this before, but if a transformer explodes, the system will shut down that section of the grid. But if several sections go down at the same time, it can cause kind of a cascading effect. It can cause these cascading blackouts. So when you talk about the thousands of substations in the U.S.,
1: just for a number, I'll throw this out there, there's around 55,000 large transformers in the US.
0: And to think that because of the interdependencies there in the system, you know,
1: nine being knocked out
0: could result in coast-to-coast blackouts, that's pretty
1: alarming. And obviously, they're not saying any nine, right? There just have to be nine critical substations. But considering how effective this attack was, this physical attack on Metcalf, and considering the... Catastrophic effect of bringing the entire US grid down, or I guess all three of the interconnects down. You know, there have been reports released from the US government. We've talked about this early on in the podcast about the likely death toll from an EMP attack, for example, which would shut down the US power grid. And I've seen numbers that range from between 70 to 90% of Americans dead after one year of the grid being lost. I mean the government knows how serious of a thing this is and to think that all it would take was the destruction of 9 substations is just is just wild. And so then you consider okay why is more not being done to protect them? You can drive around and see substations, you know, pretty insecure. I'm sure many of them are very secure. I'm sure that there are ones out there that have multiple levels of security and walls and all sorts of different things, but you can't enclose them, right? They're not locked in inside of facilities. You know, you look at the way that drones are used to drop bombs in Ukraine, and I I think how hard would that be for someone to drop an explosive device from multiple drones or whatever into an area like that? I don't think that those types of contingencies are, are planned for, you know? Metcalf didn't have a wall around it. It had a chain link fence. Since the attack, they have put a wall up, but I've seen reports, some reporting done by 60 Minutes that showed that many major substations still don't even have walls. They're just these basic chain link fences that, yeah, someone could take an AK-47 to. And in response to that question, why isn't
0: there more being done? There are lots of efforts out there that are being done, but one of the limitations is no single entity oversees the whole grid. And so, so much is determined by, like you said before, each power station, some falls under state regulations, some of it's federal regulations. You've got all these groups involved. And because it's kind of a patchwork, there's not any one individual or group that is saying this
1: level of security has to be placed on all substations. Yeah, absolutely. There's no one going to each individual of those 3000 utilities power stations or generators or whatever it is and saying, here's what you have to do 100%. Oh, and by the way, it's going to cost you tens of millions of dollars and we know you're a small utility, but figure it out. Most of it is left voluntary, which is one of the reasons that this next section is so concerning. And in today's day and age, this is perhaps the most concerning and it's the potential for cyber attacks. You know, as, we, as we move forward more and more into the internet of things, the grid has in large part gone online as well, which is a good thing in a lot of ways. It makes the grid smarter, maybe more reactive in a lot of ways. There are a lot of pros to that, but there are also a lot of cons as well. One of those being that when you are online, it leaves you vulnerable to cyber attacks. And we really don't have to use our imaginations too much to picture this one, right? There's a high level of confidence that Russian, Chinese, and other nation states are already in our grid, and they likely have the ability to enact attacks that could result in parts or all of the grid going offline. There's proof of Russian malware in software that runs the grid. Since 2015, they've found Russian malware in at least 10 different utility companies in their systems. An article in Bloomberg says the US Department of Energy continued briefing power company executives, warning that, among other things, potential adversaries had been caught manipulating grid components during manufacture, according to people familiar with the briefing contents. So they're also, it's not just malware, but they're also manipulating software components, hardware components that go into the grid. Going back to this idea that there are so many small utility companies and so many employees who work for those companies that may not have the necessary training to know how to keep their data secure. There are so many different phishing, you know, email scams, USBs that get plugged in, Bluetooth, mouses, whatever it is. There are so many points of vulnerability where malware can be placed in these systems. And a lot of times that malware doesn't mean that they're putting something malicious on there that will automatically trigger the whole grid to come down. That They they may not know how to do that, but that malware allows for them to be able to see what's happening within the system. They can infiltrate it. They can see... Learn the goings on, what are are the vulnerabilities, so that they can later take control of computers, take control of systems, and do what they need to do. You know, considering the computer bugs that caused the 2003 blackout that we just talked about, those were minor issues, right? One made it so that the alarms wouldn't sound correctly, another made it so that a specific piece of simulation software wasn't working quite right. And so just by Tweaking these little things, it had huge catastrophic consequences. Speaking in regards to training exercises and drills that were done about cyber attacks, one high-level official said attackers hijacked critical safety equipment, shut down communications, and sent fake data to confuse operators making crucial decisions. So there's a whole lot of different tools that hackers have to be able to create havoc in the system. And you can imagine how something like this, especially in conjunction with a physical attack, could be successful. And I I won't talk about much of this here, but if you're familiar with Stuxnet, if you've heard of that before, you'll know just how capable of destroying physical infrastructure hackers are. I read a book... A while back, a couple years ago, on Stuxnet, and it was fascinating. It's believed that U.S. and/or Israeli hackers basically shut down over a thousand Iranian nuclear reactors using cyber attacks. It really is an interesting story. Just recently, I believe it was last year, there was also an example of a cyber attack on U.S. infrastructure when a gas pipeline was shut down in the eastern United States. That was apparently done by someone for financial purposes. Right They wanted a a ransom, but it again goes to show how easily physical infrastructure can be affected by hackers.
0: You know, I haven't mentioned this yet, but I have a brother-in-law who is a power grid operator in the Phoenix, Arizona area, and at least where he works, there are a couple of armed guards they've got to use key cards to get through a few different doors, you know, unique logins to get on their computers. The computers that control the most critical systems are not connected to the internet. And so that's one station where they have put a lot of safeguards in place. But like we've talked about, it's different in each area. Depending on what city you're in, that's going to look very different. And, you know, somebody with enough money Enough resources, enough planning and determination. And especially like you said, if it's coordinated with a physical attack or if it's more opportunistic, if there's a certain natural disaster or some sort of event that takes place that leaves aspects of the system more vulnerable, there are definitely opportunities for, you know, bad actors to really wreak havoc on the system as a whole or at least significant parts of the system.
1: Yeah, a foreign entity would not have to drop a nuclear bomb right on the U.S. to create havoc. And you could probably argue that shutting the grid down for a sustained period of time would have a much worse effect than even sending a nuclear bomb. And it would be harder to track. It would be harder to know where it came from, who sent it, and why. I've read a few articles recently since the start of the Ukraine-Russia war regarding increasing worries from Homeland Security regarding our grid and potential attacks you know as putin makes these threats that as we aid ukraine in the war that uh, that putin is going to respond and most people think that that response will come in the nature of some sort of cyber attacks and knowing what we know about their involvement you know their extent to which they're already in the grid uh, that does make it pretty terrifying So lastly, the threats that are already here and the ones that are coming in the future are not all necessarily malicious. They're not intentional. Some of the worst effects and disasters that happen with the grid come from weather, which of course we know is getting worse and is expected to continue to get worse based on climate change. And so for a good example of this, we don't have to look too far back. We can go to Texas in 2021. So you've likely heard about what happened in Texas. And this was a mixture, again, of of a few different things happening, the biggest of which was the Texas freeze. Now, before I get into what happened here, sort of the technical reasons why they experienced what they did, I just want to note here that Texas, despite as bad as as it was, they were only four minutes and 37 seconds away from total grid failure, which would have left basically the entire state without power for a month or more. So when you think about the fact that they were that close and they just barely escaped that, you know, we're grateful that it didn't get worse, but it doesn't inspire confidence that there's not chances of this happening in the future. So Texas, again, produces its own power. We've talked about that. They have their own interconnect, which means that they rely on themselves in the event that the power goes down. They can't get power from other states. They have to be able to produce that power from within Texas. This was one thing that made them extremely vulnerable as well. So polar vortex comes in. It was abnormally, you know, further south than normal, which caused Texas to be very cold. There was a few things that that really played a part in this, and it was that that cold that they had, it was a record low. It stayed for a record long time, and it was extremely widespread it was basically the entire state of Texas that suffered from this. You know, we talked about how if a localized substation goes down, there are other ways to reroute and make up for it. But this was so widespread, it took almost the entire interconnect. And so what this did was with the decreased temperatures, as it got so cold, there was an increase in demand on the grid because people were using their heaters. Everybody had their heaters on, right? But there was also low supply because the cold and the storm knocked natural gas and wind plants offline. So with a decreased supply and an increased demand, it put an exaggerated stress on the system. By the way, prices, because of that low supply and increased demand, prices increased to a 100 times plus The normal rate for electricity, which customers were forced to pay in some cases. Some customers had bills in the thousands and even tens of thousands. There was one guy I saw that had a $17,000 electrical bill. And legal battles are still being fought today regarding who has to pay and if customers who were on auto pay will be reimbursed. So there was people who had their auto pay on charged thousands of dollars and they're still waiting to try and fight legally to get that money paid back to them. And since then, some power companies have declared bankruptcy. So basically what happened was because of the low supply, but the heightened demand, it overburdened the grid, which caused frequencies to decrease past a crucial threshold. So the systems monitor for these thresholds. And when it's below that specific frequency for too long, the plants shut off completely in order to protect equipment. But if one plant had shut off, it would have triggered the next plant to shut off because it would have had an overburdened demand. And it would have been a chain reaction throughout the entire state. And grid collapse like that, it actually does damage to the equipment. This isn't an intentional blackout. This is something that does damage to the equipment. And getting that power turned back on is a task that is just enormous. It would have taken months to get it turned back on. It's not just flipping a switch. They have to coordinate everything all together to make sure that the right amount of power and frequency is coming in and out at the same time. That supply and demand are perfectly metered. But because you're you're doing it all at once, it's just a huge task. When they noticed that that nine-minute countdown had started, they started to trigger rolling blackouts. They purposefully cut power to, to places. And what's interesting is there was an uproar about this because there were certain towns that lost power, which were deliberate choices made by the power companies of whose power to cut. Meanwhile, wealthy neighborhoods maintained power. So there were people coming into town from you know, their poorer neighborhoods. And and oh, look, all the houses up on the hill still have their power. And this resulted in numerous deaths. There was over 200 people that died because of these power outages, many of them from hypothermia, some of them from carbon monoxide poisoning, and some of them from other medical issues. But in the end, to me, what's interesting about this is this is not the first time that Texas has actually faced this issue. They have known for decades. There was a report that came out after the last time, I think it was in the 1970s, saying you have got to winterize all of your power generation. You have to make it so that natural gas can still be supplied if temperatures drop that low. You have to be able to make sure that your wind turbines work and and all these different things, and they did not heat it. Again, to think about the cost of doing these things for what is seemingly such a low chance event happening when it is a for-profit endeavor these types of things don't get done. And it's really easy for a governor to say, oh, well, this was just such a rare chance. There was just, we had no idea that this could happen and then try and move past it until, until it eventually happens again, which we know with climate change, the frequency of these types of events is just going to increase.
0: Yeah. In fact, when you talk about the frequency of these events increasing, there was an analysis done by Climate Central That showed there was a 67% increase in major power outages from weather-related events between the year 2000 and 2019 nationally. I mean, that's a huge increase in just 19 years. And the year after that, 2020, in the United States, 96% of power outages were caused by severe weather or natural disasters. And so you just think about the strain that severe cold has or heat or floods or hurricanes, you know, even drought. We see what's happening in the western U.S. right now. A lot of these hydroelectric dams that rely on a certain water level are in danger of not having enough water to be able to provide the power that they need to. And, you know, there are a lot of efforts, like I keep saying, that are being made. The power grid, you know, they've got backups. They've got a term in the industry. Apparently, it's N-1, you know, which means any part of the system is supposed to be able to lose its biggest source, its biggest generator, or its biggest transmission line or substation, whatever its most critical piece is, and still operate at peak conditions. But that means nothing when you've got a devastating Category 5 hurricane That comes through and knocks everything out. You know, one thing I saw is that those that design the power grid use historical data and they say, what are the contingencies we need to plan for? What are the extreme weather events that we can expect? But by doing that, you know, with climate change, we're seeing this increase in severe weather events. And so the infrastructure has been built for a different climate than what we're increasingly experiencing. And fortunately, because of these big interconnects, if one localized region experiences a problem, other areas can help out and push power to that region and they can adapt. But if we end up in a situation where we've got multiple large-scale weather-related events or natural disasters happening at the same time,
1: it can be catastrophic for the system as a whole. And, you know, we're here talking about Things that can lead to a collapse of the system. And what's interesting is that a lot of the safeguards that are put in place are potentially part of the problem as well in that more and more recently we're seeing pre-announced blackouts. Power demand is too high and it can't be met. A utility or one of these organizations that regulate power might say, okay, we're going to have a planned blackout so that we don't overburden. We have to keep supply equal to demand, so therefore we just have to decrease demand on the system by forcefully turning your power off. And so in California, this has been a big thing the last few years. They are having these rolling blackouts. Now, some of that also is they do it at peak times to try and keep transmission lines from sparking and starting fires, which is some of the biggest reasons that, you know, the big fires have been happening there the last few years, which is just, again, another example of these old deteriorating lines that aren't in good shape, but they refuse to fix because it costs too much. So instead we're just going to turn your power off so that we don't start fires. That's a huge problem, right? Texas this year has already had rolling blackouts announced due to not having enough supply. And now uh, I've just seen a few articles just here in the last couple days and weeks about expected blackouts this summer in many parts of the U.S. And there's been some pretty strong language about how much of the U.S. is vulnerable to blackouts this year. Many reasons were given. Some of them you've already stated, Kellen, things like drought, higher temperatures, meaning more AC being used and just simply not having enough supply to be able to meet that demand. Also, one point they, they made was that a main transmission line in the Midwest was damaged last year from a tornado. It's supposed to take months to fix. You know, It's the same thing we've talked about, how long it takes to repair these things. And so power is having to go around that line. But meanwhile, it complicates the, the process. So If there's any other issues happening in that area, there's a higher likelihood of having outages. They said specifically the Midwest and Southern states are at risk this year of rolling blackouts, but that many other places are as well. And if you would have asked me like four years ago, five years ago, if rolling blackouts would have been a huge deal, I mean, yes, I would have been like, what a sign of our failing infrastructure. What a sign of collapse that we're having to start to mandate rolling blackouts. That's unheard of. And yet now it's just becoming sort of a normal thing. And It's shocking to people the first time they hear it, or maybe the first time it happens, but then it just becomes a new normal. And I really see a day not too far into the future where we're all experiencing rolling blackouts to some degree, and slowly those blackouts will get longer and longer. The amount of time between them will become less until one day, eventually, who knows how far down the road there's a rolling blackout and the power just doesn't come back on. I think... When I think of infrastructure, our grid is the one that frightens me probably the most because it's the one that we rely on so heavily and one that I feel like has not been made a priority enough, which leaves it vulnerable to an unacceptable level. And
0: what you just described there, the increasing need for rolling blackouts and the system kind of just deteriorating as it gets more and more expensive to maintain, and we've got all these other problems going on. We know there's increasing natural disasters. That scares me a little bit more than the thought of like sudden nationwide. Blackouts, mostly because we can see that we're already heading the direction that you just described. We know that nationwide power outages are possible, but a lot of things would have to happen in order for that to take place. It's not super likely that we're just going to have this sudden collapse of the electrical grid, but that kind of dreary decline that you described is something that we're already stepping into, as you just mentioned. And so to me, that paints a pretty bleak picture for the future. And I know we've talked so much about technology. Can technology save us? There are a lot of great promising technological advancements, but we needed to implement those at a large scale and put the resources
1: toward that decades ago in order for us to be in the spot we need to be at right now. And, you know, in this whole conversation, we are talking just about the infrastructure itself. We're not even talking about the requirement for the production of the energy. You know, we, we keep saying, you know, supply can't meet demand and that supply side all about energy is a whole other topic, which we've touched on before. But you know, we talk about and we think about the energy cliff, think about peak energy. It's one thing for the infrastructure itself not to be able to appropriately deliver the energy, but it's another thing if we don't have the energy at all. So the last thing to touch on here briefly just a quick minute is to think about how can one sort of prepare for this type of thing, right? And the biggest thing that comes to my mind is just decentralizing the power grid. Right now it is centralized, everybody relies on the system working where communities, neighborhoods and individuals should be thinking about ways to be able to secure power in a closed loop, right? So Obviously on a very basic level, individuals can purchase off-grid solar for their homes. And one point I want to make is that I think a lot of people think about solar and you look around and you see all the solar panels on people's houses, most solar is grid tied. So if a guy, you know, a door-to-door salesman knocks on your door and tries to sell you solar, the highest likelihood is that that solar is not going to work should the power go out. So if you are considering buying solar panels, do it for the environment, that's great but also do it for yourself. And if you can afford it, get the panels that will work off grid and allow you to have power when the grid goes down. Obviously there's so much more that we could talk about that a person should do to be prepared for something like this, whether it's a sudden grid down scenario, or whether it's slow you know, over the next 20, 30 years of rolling blackouts until it eventually just is gone. And not everyone has money for solar panels. Most people don't have money for solar panels. I don't have solar panels on my roof. But this topic certainly does make me start to think and consider what kinds of things, what types of things that I can and should be doing now to help my family, to help my neighborhood and my community become resilient and prepared for these types of events for this future.